Hello, hello, and welcome to Soccer Made in Portland on OregonLive.com and Stumptown Footy. My name is Chris Reifer, and joining me as always, the Timbers and Thorns beat writer for the Oregonian and OregonLive.com, Jamie B. Goldberg. Jamie B., what's up? Well, I'm just really excited this week. This is like what you wait for all year, playoffs and meaningful games and exciting soccer to watch, so... Um, I'm just really enjoying this week so far and preparing for the thorns. Obviously timbers are off. We'll talk about them as well, but, but I just excited that we have this game, um, in Portland this weekend, thorns versus pride, uh, that I'm going to get to cover and I'm hoping it's going to be a pretty interesting game. I have an idea. Uh, let me know what you think of this idea, but I have an idea. Uh, as, as you mentioned, the Thorns are taking on the Orlando Pride. That's going to be Saturday, 1230, uh, NWSL semifinal, you know, kind of a BFD, uh, if we're being perfectly honest. Uh, so, so what do you think about this? Why don't we call up, uh, Thorns head coach, Mark Parsons and, and see if he wants to talk to us. Yeah, good idea. Yeah. I think that's a pretty good idea. Okay, uh, we're, we're, we're going to take a, a quick break, which to you means nothing, uh, because this is a podcast. Uh, and we're going to see if we can call Mark Parsons and, and see if he'll talk to us. Uh, and, and, and we'll, you know, talk to you on the other side. We'll see how it goes. It is now our, our great pleasure to welcome back to the show our good friend of the show, Mark Parsons, head coach of the Portland Thorns. Uh, Mark, how are you doing this week? I imagine a pretty relaxed week uh, at the office for you. Uh, relaxed. Um a little bit, but uh, but also extremely focused. It's uh, yeah, lots going on, and and staff have been great, players have been great, and uh, things have come along nicely. So let's let's start off with uh, I guess what is the Mark Parsons news of the day? Uh, you got into a, little, into a little bit of a back and forth uh, yesterday with Orlando Pride head coach Tom Sermani uh, that ended with him saying, cheaply in my opinion. Uh, that there were, quote, a few other NWSL coaches who were, I, I would say, more prodigious than you uh, in the banter department. Uh, I don't think this is an accusation that can go without a response. And so we wanted to give you a, a forum, uh, a medium in, in which to make you, your response to that comment. What do you say? i got no problem conceding uh, here in this area. I'll go, uh, I've got two reasons. One no one talks to me anymore now I'm over over here on the dark side with thorns. And uh, <laughs> I don't have as much opportunity to, to dish back some banter. Two, I don't know if I've got time because I'm getting torn to pieces banter-wise by the players every day. And, and I'm just trying to survive throughout the day without, without being photobombed, videobombed, made jokes of, put a mullet on my head. It's a dangerous place during the day at, at Providence Park with these thorns running around um, and, and I seem to be the main culprit at times in, in, in getting it. So I don't, I don't mind uh, conceding here. So <laughs> would you say then that you're maybe a little bit gun shy in the banter department right now? I think lacking confidence would be appropriate. <laughs> okay. A little bit more favorable phrasing. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a break because I, I suppose uh, the soccer results have been good enough to, to make up for, for the lack of bants. Uh, coming from you recently, so we'll give you we'll give you a, a break on that one. Um, so on a more serious note, uh, you started the season five, four, and four, but went nine, one, and one in your last eleven games. In retrospect, what do you think was the turning point uh, for this team? I, I think we had a really um, 
good run there until when we played Sky Blue away. I thought we had just got going. It normally takes us uh, you know, five, six games to get going, and a couple of reasons is the short, short preseason. We've got players all over the place during preseason international duty, and uh, it take, it, 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 this is a lot of quality players with a lot of personality that have a lot of different thoughts about the game, and to get them on the same page, it took us a while last year, it's taken a while again this year. No, we, we were doing well. We ended up uh, winning away from home, and I felt we were on a, we we got going and we were on a good run when we when we won Sky Blue away. International break, and of course, it's challenging for all teams, and it's a challenge for us when we had the number away. We came back, and you know that was probably our little dip. We had some challenging results, uh, and I think the change that if you want to put a time stamp on it, well, Houston away, we we dominated. It was one of our most most productive uh, games in the sense of what we do with our passes, the areas we get into, the opportunities to create. Um, But we uh, we found ourselves 1-0 down. Uh, I remember uh, then going through one-on-one in the second half to make it 2-0, and AD France just makes an unbelievable save. And, you know, we we haven't put her in a position where where she has to make world-class saves like that too often. And and that's because she's a good organiser. She's a good communicator. But she came up big, kept it 1-0, and I would say her, her save and Haran's free kick that got us to 1-1, and we got out of there you know, disappointed with that result because that was a game we wanted three. Um, but we came back home and played North Carolina, and I'd say, you know, from that game, I felt like um, uh, things had changed. Um, so I'd say our uh, it, it, it takes time to get to get all these players moving in the same direction. You know, it's... It, it, we just spend four or five months away from each other and we talk, we email, we do a lot of stuff to, to stay on the same page, which is tough. And um, we had our dip, Houston away, what what great stuff by the team and, and those two individuals. And then we got running and, and uh, I think North Carolina, you could say, I think dropping into midfield has been big time. Around playing in centre midfield a little bit lower um, has been a game changer for us. We've got Catherine Reynolds. I mean, she, I, I, I still can't believe how many games we had missed her for. You know, she's a key defender. She's got back in now, and I can't. I still can't remember how many games she she did miss. She's back in the back line, and um, you know everything's coming together. Players getting stronger, getting healthier. The uh, the tactical side keeps moving forward. Where we, I think, our biggest strength, and it's because of the culture that we create and build through, which is player led, is wanting to grow and learn from each experience, from each game. And this group continues to do that. And like last year, I think we're playing our best stuff at the end of the year. Certainly over the course of the season, one of your biggest contributors has been Haley Rosso. She, she just won the, the Supporters Player of the Year Award. When she arrived in Portland and I watched her play, I, you know, I basically just pegged her as a, a, a pacey, disruptive, but out-and-out winger. Somebody who is going to do almost all of her work working off one of the shoulders of the fullbacks. She's certainly done a lot of that this year and, and has even taken that to another level. But you've developed her and, and and sort of deployed her as a forward in a two front at times. How big of a, of a development in her game do you think that versatility is, and, and being able to put her in a couple different spots along the front line? Yeah, I would say that the four areas that that she has um, seen a lot of action in, and and areas that we wanted to one get her in because she's good at them, or two develop one out wide touchline 1v1 beating people you know that's what you, you just mentioned that's that's our player identity we got her uh, beginning of the season we spent a lot of time with her in the pocket off the wing 
in front of the back line, in front of centre-backs, coming in, getting faced up, running at people. Um, we've played a high where she's had to give us and provide us our runs behind, behind back line and across the back line, and also keep improving her back to goal play in getting it into feet, setting and spinning. And so she's she's got we what we wanted to get into those one of those you know those four areas either because she she's got those strengths or two because we wanted to develop. Um, and and what you see from our team from that North Carolina game onwards is a bit more aggression in the way that we defend higher up the field and a bit more aggression in how we attack and how positive um, that we want to be in. And that's there's two two factors for that. And Rasso has has grown and been a huge part part of that puzzle. Um, you know, two things. One, it, it took us it took us time to uh, appreciate the importance of breaking lines um, when whenever we're starting low or starting high. You know, breaking lines, looking to, to go forward, work between um, lines of the opposition, or get behind their back line. It took us a while to understand what that truly meant. And secondly, the demands of the league. The demands of the league this year have taken another big stride in. You you have to be able to um, get after teams because the teams are better, the players are better. You've got to be able to defend them when you first lose it and higher up the ball, higher up the field. And if you don't, they could, anyone's good enough any day of the week to to cause you problems. So so having Rafa up there higher uh, as well as wide crucial to our team because her work rate off the ball, her mobility, her pace, her desire to work off the ball. And the goals that she's created or scored have been big-time goals that have won us games. Seattle away, you look at the goals she got there, a Carolina header um, that took, start, took off this run. Um, Boston away, uh, we, we played a right wing back all, the, all, all game and we moved her up front for the um, final part, up the right forward. And, and she, she, got, she got the ball to sink, who had a great finish. Uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of games where it's not just goals when you're winning three or four nil. Uh, it's actually it's been games that we've really needed her. And I think the scary thing is, there's no doubt this is just the beginning for her. And, and there's, there's, I know staff and players who, who've been working with her each day. They they appreciate that more than anyone. And the key for for Rasso is always that she's got areas to stay focused, stay hungry, stay humble. To, to want to keep growing and keep learning. And if she does, then, then this is the beginning. And, you know, it's going to be hard because she's at a high standard. It's not always going to, it can't always look this good. It's not, it's not, it's just not practical. But if her mindset can stay this good, then she's going to continue moving forward. She's going to learn from when days that doesn't go so well. She's going to show more days that do go so well. So it's been exciting to see her development. Uh, and, and she's, you know, just like when she's off, She's, she's got to own it. She's owning this right now. She, she's doing the work. And if that changes, she, she's got to own it and make sure she starts doing it again because it's putting this great place and it's, it's been a massive contributor for our team. What, last season's loss to Western New York in the semifinals uh, probably isn't your favorite subject, but it is on the mind of many Thorns fans this week um, going into the semifinal on Saturday. What do you... What did you and the team learn from that experience last year? The biggest lesson is that you got to prepare, you know, for for everything. And um, you know, we felt very prepared for that game, and you know, we had handled the long throw very well um, in the two games previously. And what we didn't do in that game was adjust. And um, 
um, they they changed the organisation slightly. We didn't adjust, and you know, it's a, it's a wild few bounces and the balls in the back of the net. Um, and I think the, the the other lesson was when I think what the players showed in that game, especially go towards the second half or in the extra time, when we really needed to get goals, and we had got them in previous games, and we've done it again this year, um, is that. Uh, we were so determined, we were so passionate that you saw you saw the hearts of the players on their sleeve in the way we attacked. We just wanted to go to goal. We wanted to go forward. We wanted to to hurt them. And, and New York's strength was down the middle. So what we did in our desire and our passion to uh, win the game, we just slipped away from the things that that um, we probably needed to do. Uh, Raffo came on as a substitute. We didn't find her enough on, in a wide area, so we didn't stretch them enough. Um, and this is me really nitpicking because it's probably the best NWSL game or, or probably the best women's game I've seen live with my own eyes. No doubt one of the best NWSL games that, that's ever been with two very committed teams. So this is really nitpicking because there was a lot of good stuff. I mean, we had we could score good goals with some sloppy mistakes that, that don't normally happen. So I, I think that being ready for anything, also, what 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 is key to us when we if we have when we're trying to score? What's key to us when we're defending? And never lose sight of that. No matter the moment in the game, or the stress or pressure in the game, we can't lose sight of that. And uh, and 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 three, I just think that we because of that experience, we have it's taught us that nothing you don't you don't get anything you don't you don't play well all season finish first and then deserve to win a semi-final you have to earn it it's new 90 minutes or 120 minutes of football and again that's not a knock on staff or players i thought we we didn't we didn't um we didn't take that mentality in but it just showed because uh it showed with the result it was yes there were some wild things that happened and you know, it does make me sick to the stomach when I think of some of the decisions that, that happened in that game and, and, and not just decisions, but game-changing decisions. And, at, of course, at the time, I'm sitting there, no matter what we have to deal with, we have to be able to adjust and find a way, and, and that's always our mentality. But when you watch back and the, it's a few months later, it, yeah, it's, it's sickening some of the things that we had to we had to deal with. But that's that's the game. That's the It's always has been, and... and and I think that that experience from going through that certainly makes us psychologically stronger. Over the course of the second half of the season, you, you've switched quite a lot from between, you know, four and five at the back. Frankly, that's it's been the most impressive thing to me over the course of, of the second half that you've been able to do so really effectively without a lot of systemic disruption. That's frankly just not easy for a lot of teams, particularly for defensive midfielders and, and fullbacks and, and, and wingbacks that sort of have their rotations and, and, and where they're, they're looking for the game to come be a little bit different between the two systems. Why has this gone so well? Uh, I haven't been able to figure that out, and, and I was hoping you could help us with that. Why has, has sort of that tactical flexibility in this team really gone so well over this second half? I love the question, and... Um... Uh, we haven't really talked about that that answer, um, and and I'm you're talking it through and kind of getting excited about sharing the details. I mean, but number one, our principles of how we defend and attack. Um, but let me go this way: our principles of how we defend 
haven't really changed in regards to the back line. They haven't changed. And even though there's different numbers at times, the principles haven't changed. And that's 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 made it easy. We we played uh we played this formation in pre season. We against Houston. It was and it was our best pre season game. It was the last pre season game in the stadium. We, I think it was one-one in the end. We dominated the game. We had it was it was a lot of players that would not had not started or would not start in the league. We had a, all of our non-contract players starting. And Houston had an NWSL starting eleven. We played it then, and when we had the international breaks, we played it and trained it during those periods. We played it against Oregon in preseason as well. We played it against boys teams. Whenever the internationals were away, we trained uh, this formation. And knowing later on we're going to need the flexibility to be able to go from the four two three one to this shape and and what we wanted to have by this part is two two formations we can we can start in or slip into and and because we we did some early work on it and we had some early success uh, I, I think it's been a smooth it's, it's helped in being a smooth adjustment. Um, but it's. I think that the, no matter what we throw at this group, whether it's a good or bad idea, what makes anything work is how open this group is, how determined, how committed. And the players you're talking about that had the biggest adjustments, Menges, Sonnet, Kling, Calf, and now you look at Sykes, who's been in there, Celeste Bure, Megan Cox when she was here, Dagny slipped in there. Uh, these players will do whatever you want and need them to do to help the team. And then you've got Klingenberg, who, who's attention to detail to knowing everything and anything about how we can be the best is 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 so so high and you've got Menges who's just the calmest most open-minded person ready to do what you need to do you've got Sonnet who's who's confident who's clever witty smart and and not only does the basics really well but then adds little layers that that um and, and cheekiness to to defending, you know, and and, and something she doesn't. You know, we we try and keep. We want her to keep it very simple. And I think in a few years we'll appreciate her intelligence when defending, the way she knows her opponent and knows what they're about to do. So we've trained it. We trained it from preseason intermittently when other players were away. Um, we have a, you know, we did in the North Carolina home game. We changed our press. We changed how we press and our shape higher up the field. But regards to the back line. Yeah, we've we've looked at it, and and whether you call it a three, four, or five, um, you know, one thing we always try and make sure is it's never less than four when we're defending. You know, it becomes a three when we're attacking, and I think that's the final piece. What we did from the very beginning was have a holding mid drop in between the centre backs to create that three to give us the line and the opportunity to to do the positional play we wanted to higher up the field. So when we played this shape. The attacking side was already laid out. Was, the hours had already been spent on that shape. It was just become easier now because where Ali or or Amandine had to drop in before, there was a certain part of the field that they had to step out of it again. And now that player has become Sonnet, and she's permanently there. And I think that's helped. It's a it's a huge credit to to the to the to the group, and and also I think. I'm glad that we decided to do that early, that we, we knew we might need this, we might need to look at this, we need to do this to see out games, to go and win games, whatever you, way you look at it. And the group have been open-minded and given it everything. You said today after training that you expect Tobin Heath to start on Saturday and, and that 
in terms of minutes, you don't necessarily know. It, it's going to depend on uh, someone on how how she feels, how the game goes. What have you thought, though, so far of her performance over the course of these last few weeks uh, coming off this injury? It's been refreshing. It's been exciting. And, and uh, it's just, it's a joy. It's a joy to be able to watch her uh, play football. And um, I, I, if I if I want to be... Um, uh, I'll answer your question. What was the thoughts on her actual play and supporting our team? You know, what what she brings when she's on the field, and she brings it for anyone. She brings to our team is you, when we get her on the ball, we can commit numbers to attacking runs because we know she's going to keep it. Um, when she's in tight spaces, um, we know that we can we can leave her in there and she'll get out of it, and then look to get the ball from her. Um, when she's one-on-one, we know to stay away from her so she can have that space to get at that player. She strikes the ball with her left foot, she strikes the ball with her right foot, and she's been showing that so far with her free kicks, corners. And, and it's great to see her in the Chicago game get some opportunities. I know she, she mentioned she would love to, to have taken a few of them. It's, for me, I'm all, always about getting them in that position as often as possible and letting them be be who they are. And, and it was great to see her get those opportunities. So it's it's been refreshing to have her back. She's she's brought a very different flavour back to, to our hardworking team. Um, it's it's you know it's it's exciting and a bit scary to to have a player of her quality. And um, the fact that she's been out for uh, five six five six months and she's playing at this level is remarkable. Um, her mentality and you know it's it's sometimes we spend half our time just making sure she realises how how special she she is her mentality is she wishes she was further ahead she wishes she was sharper she wishes she was this and that and it's just that's just what's got her here that type of winning mentality and desire to be even better no matter what and i'm sitting there going holy hell uh folks we um you know you've you've been out for a long time and and what you're currently doing is making us better it's making us stronger and and you're way ahead what you probably should be uh so it's it's a good balance it's a balance of of approach and she's hungry she wants more you know she's she's not going to be happy to just to play this game like no not anyone else on the team they want they want two more games and you know with that we've we've certainly talked about this being our final not leaving any stone unturned this is our one opportunity and and we're gonna we're gonna give it everything we're certainly excited to see that balance back in action that's gonna be saturday 12 30 at providence park a uh, big NWSL semifinal uh, against the Orlando Pride, Mark. Uh, thank you so much for taking some time out of your preparations this week to come talk to us uh, about that game and, and much, much more. We, we appreciate it as always and wish you the best of luck next week. All the best, guys. Great coverage. See you guys soon. Big thanks once again to Mark uh, for coming on the show. That, believe it or not, in, in spite of my, you know, Play acting was arranged, uh, but very, very nice of him to come on the show to take some time uh, ahead of a big game and and, and to talk to us. Uh, and, and yeah, we appreciate it. Outstanding interview, I thought. Uh, a number of really good things. What did you think was your sort of highlight uh, from that discussion with Mark? Yeah, he has a, made a lot of interesting points. It was especially interesting, I think, to hear how much they kind of worked behind the scenes on solidifying this formation that's been really effective for them in this latter part of the season and how much that was something that they had in their back pocket throughout the year. And it wasn't just 
one game they decided to test it out and it worked so uh, of course there's going to always be that type of work behind the scenes but it's a little bit it is interesting to get a little bit of a perspective uh from the coach about that what's going on and what we're not always seeing i am so i was like if you had been able to see me during that answer it, it was sort of like jaw dropped kind of kind of things when he was talking about uh, their work on 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 the five player back line early in the season that is look i mean that's just really really good coaching he he was not only like sort of looking ahead to challenges they were going to face with international call-ups and things like that during the season but he was just sort of looking ahead at the season as a whole and he was like you know what this is a club that we're going to have to have in our bag. This is something that we're going to have to be able to do at some point. It's not It's not like it's a small move. It's not like it's a small uh, adjustment to have to make. It's a huge adjustment to have to make. And to have the foresight to basically be like, I'm going to have to do this in three months. I'm going to start working it now to make sure it's something that I can pull off, to make sure it's something my team is comfortable with. That is spectacularly good coaching. And uh, I, I think if if you are somehow unconvinced uh, by Mark Parsons and his coaching chops, go back and listen to that again because that is incredibly good stuff. And, and look, I mean, you can see the results uh, going to the, to that five player back line because even sort of going back and forth between the between four at the back and five at the back has been huge. There have been a lot of times where we're sort of coming into games you definitely feel opponents trying to feel out the thorns, trying to figure out what they're doing. Uh, and, and, and not be, and it's because they do have that tactical flexibility because they do have, even if they're sticking with, with some similar principles, as you discussed, they do have multiple approaches that can give you multiple different looks and it's gotta be just a nightmare to prepare for. So, I mean, that is, that is a truly, truly remarkable accomplishment for him. And, and, and I think it, it just, you know, the proof is in the pudding. It is a huge factor in what they've done over the course of the last couple of months. And look, nine, one and one. That's that's pretty darn good. Uh, OK, let's talk about some timbers before we return to talk about quite a bit of thorns, because obviously the sort of pressing news of the week is thorns centric. Uh, but the timbers did go down to San Jose and what was a super important game and didn't do much of anything impressive. Uh, they lost two to one. Uh, the one came late. Uh, as the Timbers were were sort of trying to scratch and claw their way back into the game, the, the Quakes scored early and then uh, again early in the second half, uh, and and pretty well had the game well in hand by that point. Uh, we were both like semi optimistic the Timbers could come out with something from this game. You called a three three draw with a Darren Maddox goal. Uh, the three three draw obviously is a big old meh. Uh, the Maddox goal is like a meh, but like. Almost. <laughs> you almost had that. Uh, Darren Maddox did have a goal that, that was uh, flagged offside uh, just very narrowly. Uh, I think it was a questionable enough call, but it stood. Uh, I called a 1-1 draw with Laris Mabiala goal. That's all just nah, other than I got like the number of goals that the Timbers scored. I don't know. Uh, Jamie, go ahead and give, give out the points, but th- this is probably going to be pretty, you know, meek. Yeah, I actually just think we both get zero. I, I don't feel like we got really the feeling of the game and we didn't get the side bets. You're not going to give me a fraction of a point for predicting the Timbers would score one goal? No, I really I really don't think that one goal um, with the score line completely incorrect and um, I, I just No, the score line not completely in the correct. The score line only yeah, half I, incorrect. I guess the, <laughs> the margin completely incorrect. I don't know. I, I just don't see... I just don't think you got the feeling of the game at all. 
I'm over here begging, begging for like well, a, a fraction of a point. You're just like you're giving me the old yeah, Heisman. Yeah, you gave. <laughs> Come on, gave me the job, uh, giving up points. <laughs> all right, well, I see how it goes. I want to call Mark back. Uh, I see how it goes. Uh, you know, I, I think the story of the game coming out sort of from a player perspective was just that. Uh, I, I'll just put this simply: Roy Miller had kind of a shocker. Um, two pretty significant errors from Miller. There, there were a couple of people on Twitter like going at me uh, about this during the game. Yes, there are always other things that you can like look to on a play that contributed to it. But uh, Miller primarily responsible uh, on both concessions for the Timbers. Uh, what did you think was was the cause of this? He played at left back. Do you think that's that's what it was, or or, or do you think it, it was just a matter of you know a guy who's been the the Timbers probably most consistent defender over the course of the season just sort of being due for a for a belly flop? I think it's a little of both. I, I, I do think that he has been much better at left back throughout the season. This isn't something we necessarily saw coming on the defensive side, at least to this degree. But I, I do think he's less comfortable at that position. And that's something we've known since the beginning of the year where the Timbers brought him in primarily to play center back, recognizing that when he was play, used primarily as a left back in New York, it, it didn't always go uh, how they wanted it to go. And so Timbers brought him in and said, this guy's a center back. We know he's going to be effective there. The mistake is that he's been used out of position in the past. And now he's been used at that left back position much more than the Timbers ever anticipated. I think he can be good in that position. I think he's had some very good games in that position. I think he's generally a more consistent defensive player than he showed over the weekend. But I do think he's less comfortable overall. And, and obviously, on top of that, I think, and this isn't really necessarily fit into what he did wrong specifically in this game, but I do think the attacking side um, when he's at that position is lacking for the Timbers. He just doesn't bring that offensive push that you get out of other left backs, specifically Vitas. So I just, I was a bit surprised to see him back in there with Vitas healthy. I just think he brings a lot more and I think he'll play better if he keeps playing left back, but there's a real question if that's something the Timbers want to continue doing. Yeah, I don't think there's much of a real question. I, I think it's something the Timbers don't want to continue doing. And look, this is this is totally in line with sort of the the reasonable assessments of his time with the Red Bulls too. Uh, Roy Miller, when at left back, there played a number of perfectly solid games for New York. He also had some very very high profile shockers. I, but I, if you go back and look sort of at the the totality of his of his experience with the Red Bulls. He, he put in a good number of solid shifts. That's why he was a pretty consistent starter at left back for the Red Bulls for multiple seasons. It's not like he had incriminating photos of anybody. Uh, he, he was, you know, overall a solid left back. But those shockers were a problem. And those shockers really cost the Red Bulls in spots. Uh, and those shockers are why he played almost exclusively left center back. Uh, for Saprisa. It's why he played uh, after he, he left the Rebels, he played almost exclusively left center back for, for the national team. And it's why the Timbers, I, I thought very smartly brought in Roy M Miller and in and, and a move that, that now turns out to be very, very good in spite of the criticism at the time, the Timbers turned out to be right that Miller could come in and could be a good, solid, uh, consistent left center back at, in the, at the MLS level again. Uh, the t I, I just don't get it to some extent to where, where they sort of un they, they it's like they, they got the answer to a to a math problem right uh, 
and then changed it to be wrong. Uh, like they got it right. They were sort of going around being like, yeah, we got this right. Great. And everybody was like, yeah, you totally got it right. We, we totally like thought you were going to get it wrong. And then they like changed their answer to re get it wrong again. I, I, you know, I, I get it when sort of that hand is forced. I even to some extent get it when the Timbers want to do something very specific, uh, and, and they want to basically tuck him in like he's a left center back uh, and, and keep him just pinned uh, pretty close in into the center back and, and, and play that way. That makes sense. But that's not how they were playing in San Jose. He was spending a lot of time up on that touchline. He was spending a lot of time up near midfield. He wasn't getting into the attack, but he was spending a lot of time where he was pretty separated away from Liam Ridgewell. You can see that very, very much where, where he is up fully on the touchline. That was part of the problem uh, in how he received what was a ball that put him in a tough spot, to be sure. Uh, but he, it was taking him well out of where you would expect to see him as a left center back. And he made a big, big mistake that led to a goal. Uh, this, I mean, so, you know, it, there, there's nobody that's surprised by the mistakes that, that he made. Uh, that that saw him play as a left back at, at, at New York. That was always been a risk with him at that position, and it's one that the Timbers, by sort of making that their go to left, their go to back line approach, uh, I thought invited, and and they got bit by something that I think they should have known better. Uh, they they should have known better with. Uh, you know, he has put in good performances. Uh, and, you know, I I don't know if I would say good performances, but solid performances at left back. But there have also been warning signs of this. The the first goal against L.A. was very much Miller making a pretty big mistake, a mistake unlike anything we've seen him make at center back at left back. Uh, and so, you know, this is it's it's part of why we've been uh, sort of talking about this isn't probably a, a wise primary approach for the Timbers. And, well, I think the two of us probably look a little bit better in that perspective uh, the, the, than the Timbers do uh, in, in going about that. So I think going forward, it should be an easy call. Uh, it should be Vetus at left back. Uh, you know, you, you can make arguments either way, whether you think it should be Ridgewell or Miller at left center back. I think the way Caleb Porter thinks about that is very clear uh, that it'll be Ridgewell. I, I think as we've discussed many, many times, there is there are good reasons for 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 Porter to think that. I think you can also reasonably argue that Miller has been so consistent and so solid for the Timbers at left center back uh, that maybe they should stick with that hand. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that's that's an unreasonable perspective by any means. But uh, at this point, I, I just do not get the rationale for Roy Miller at left back. Uh, it's not like the Timbers don't have another good option at, at that spot. And I just think it's, yeah, it's just, yeah. Uh, Sean is sort of talks about this uh, sort of on the other end of things. Uh, that I intentionally e- evaded in, in that answer. And he asks, is it safe to say that the switch from Vitas to Miller has hurt Sebastian Bl- Blanco's production on the left? Jamie, what do you think? Is it safe to say that? Yeah, I, I think it is. I-, I think if you want an example of that, just look at the end of the game. I w- I- they inserted Alvis Powell. They put Blanco back onto the right. And I, I think Blanco was the Timbers' best player in the attack in, in the waning minutes of that game. And, and if the Timbers were going to come back, it had a lot to do with him stepping up. And I do think having a player behind him at the fullback position that, that can contribute, that can get into the attack, that can complement him, it is important to his production. And we've seen that his production lag a little bit. And it has been at a time when we've seen Miller play a little bit more left back. So uh, I think that is uh, definitely relevant. I, I think we've talked you know, about what, what, what side Blanco's playing on, whether that's whether he's more effective on one or the other, things like that. There, there, there are certainly other factors, but 
uh, I think it is safe to say that that's made a difference. Yeah, I definitely think it's safe to say it made a difference. And, and you make a good point in that as soon as he he switched over to the right, even with Zarek, when he was paired with Zarek Valentin, he started coming into the game more. And it's just because he had a little bit more support from his fullback. And look, this is this is not a thing that's that, that's you know unique to Blanco. Uh, I think if you were to ask ten wingers uh, if they would prefer to play w- w- with an overlapping fullback. On average, nine and a half of them uh, would tell you uh, that yes, they prefer to play with a fullback that, that that's coming out uh, that's overlapping over the, over the top of them. And the reason is is relatively simple. If you've got a fullback that's bombing on, that's getting into the attack, uh, and that's stretching the field a little bit for them, it makes it so much easier for wingers to find spaces because it's forcing defensive midfielders to rotate out. It's, it's forcing left backs. Uh, to rotate. It's forcing winger, the opposing wingers to come back and defend a bit, and it's just forcing the defense to get into motion, and when the defense is getting into motion, it finds it, it makes it easier for wingers to find creases. So especially, especially if you have wingers like a Blanco, like a Nagby, that like to play in the channels, it just creates spaces for them in which they can operate, and it puts the defense in, in motion when they have a consistent overlapping threat coming over the top of them. That is exactly why you saw Blanco go from being, I mean, irrelevant would be a little bit strong, but close to irrelevant <laughs> uh, throughout much of the game when he was playing on the left side with Miller as his left back. That's why you saw saw him come into the game almost immediately when he switched over to the right, which, by the way, is the side on which Blanco is traditionally less effective. He's shown to be most effective when he's on the left, when he's got some support from his fullback, and when he can get into those creases. Uh, and, and so I think the fact that he was so quiet uh, on the left and has been now pretty consistently over the course of the last month or so when Miller's been playing at left back, uh, and then suddenly become the t- became the Timbers' best attacker when he had some support from his fullback. And especially, as you noted, when Powell, I thought, came in and did a really nice job uh, of giving him that support, of making those runs that he needed to make in order to make things easier for Blanco. Uh, the, the fact that he he just turned night and day uh, and, and ultimately ended up getting a goal, but also created a number of other dangerous sequences, I, I think is, is, is proof in the pudding right there. I, I, I think that is case in point. Uh, that that it absolutely has hurt him not to have some fullback support uh, in, in the attack. Look, you know, it was the same thing with with Darlington Nagby when he moved up at into uh, the left wing and had Vitas coming over the top of him. Nagby suddenly went from, and this gets to 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 a, a next point, but he immediately came into the game and he was very very effective. Heck, he was the other guy that helped set up the goal. He was very, very effective from that left wing position where the Timbers with, with Blanco in that spot previously had got basically no production uh, over the course of the first 50 or 55 minutes uh, of that game. And so I, I think it's massive. I think this team is just better. The attack is better uh, when they're when they're getting their, their fullbacks into the attack. And that doesn't mean they have to take ridiculous risks. That doesn't mean they, they have to leave their central defense exposed. Uh, that doesn't mean that, that they have to be irresponsible with how they're deploying their fullbacks. But it's something that's got to be there because it just helps grease the wheels for everybody else in the attack. Uh, Darlington Nagman, that, that was, as I alluded to, sort of the other surprise uh, in the, the 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 starting eleven, Nagby reprised his role in central midfield alongside Diego Chara in in, in more of a defensive uh, central midfield role. He wasn't as much of a true six uh, as he was the the week prior against Orlando. There there was a little bit more of a double pivot going on between he and Chara, 
He moved into the left wing spot uh, after Vitas came on uh, in the 50th or 55th minute. Uh, what did you think uh, about this decision, the decision to leave David Guzman on the bench? It is clear that this was about form. Uh, it was it was not about, and it was about tactics. It was not about uh, Guzman's health. We, we found that out after the game uh, when, when Porter said that Guzman is healthy. What, what do you think uh, about that decision? And do you, do you think it's something that we're likely to see sort of as the, the primary setup going forward? Yeah, I, I was surprised by that decision. I think Guzman overall has been a very important player for the Timbers this year in central midfield. I think Nagby was, like you said, he, he wasn't playing in this exact same role he's been playing in Orlando. I, I thought obviously in that position in Orlando, he was much more effective. I, I thought he was less visible in this game from that position and, and obviously he was playing a slightly different role. And, and I think it was night and day, the impact he made on the game when he moved to the to the wing. I think it was a lot more impactful on the match for the Timbers from that position. And I think bringing Guzman in helped the Timbers immediately, both defensively and um, being able to build through that central midfield. I also think Espria didn't contribute at all on defense. And I think that didn't help the Timbers in a situation where they were already having a game where they were struggling on the back line. And so I don't think Espria was particularly effective, especially um, in contributing defensively, which Porter has said he needs out of his wingers uh, from that position. I, I think it would have been more effective had the Timbers started Nagby on the wing and Guzman in central midfield. So I think that was the wrong decision. I think Nagby can be effective in that position, but given Guzman's availability, I, I think it would have been a lot more impactful to get Guzman on the field and start Nagby on the wing. Tremendous point in talking about Dyron Espria and his, and his ineffectiveness in that game, both in the attack, but as, as you noted, he got absolutely skinned by Shea Salinas a number of times. Uh, and that really put the Timbers in a bad spot in, in, in any number of situations. As for how Nagby was in, in central midfield, I didn't think he was bad. I, I thought he was okay. I thought he had a couple nice moments defensively, actually, where he really did a nice job of recovering and making up uh, some space in a, in a couple instances, including uh, when, it, when Espria got burned a little bit. Uh, and so it's not that I thought he was bad in that spot or bad in that role. I didn't think he was uh, a liability defensively. He was getting on the ball a reasonable amount uh, into the attack. He wasn't getting up into the attack a whole lot. Uh, but, you know, I mean, that that's just sort of part of what you're going to see from Nagby quite a bit in that role. He's not going to get up into the attack as much as he is as a winger because, you know, duh. Um, but, yeah, I thought it was night and day <laughs> when he shifted up into the left wing. You're like, Oh, this guy went from being, you know, a guy who's putting in a decent performance and, you know, might be the eighth or 10th best player on the field to suddenly being like, oh, this guy's like the best or the second best player on the field right now. Uh, this guy's a serious difference maker. When he when when he went to that left wing spot, it was like a light came on. Uh, and I agree with you. When you've got a player as good as David Guzman that you can put into that spot. Uh, I think you do it. I, I mean, I, 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 to some extent, this may this may be just sort of kind of overthinking or, 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 or wanting to play the hot lineup or, or, or something. But look, I mean, you, you chart out what the, the Timbers' most natural best 11 is. And, and I think it's David Guzman uh, in, in central midfield. It's Darlington Nagby on the left wing. Uh, I think you can put Sebastian Blanco on the right and you can switch him around a little bit. Uh, and, and, and Diego Valeri at the 10 and hopefully Fernando Adi uh, up at the 9. But I think it was it was a little bit too cute in, in sticking with what worked well. Uh, granted, uh, against Orlando, 
And I, I don't mean to say that, you know, Nagby should never play in that six, eight role again. I, you know, we've talked about this many times. I think that is a very, very good option for the Timbers to have as kind of a change of space, uh, as kind of a change of pace in games in which it makes sense. Uh, but I just don't think that's going to work as the primary setup. I don't think that's an optimal primary setup given the other personnel available. Uh, and I think the the track record on that uh, going all the way back to 2016 is pretty clear. Uh, so, you know, I, 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 I also disagree with the decision. I, I don't think it, it made sense. And again, I think the, the moves that Porter made just shortly, shortly after halftime, uh, sort of laid that bear pretty well in the game. Let's talk about the result in general, because, uh, the, the result, uh, does obviously lose three crucial points for the Timbers, uh, when they are sort of in a, a really tightly packed now somewhat less tightly packed four-team race for the top two spots in the Western Conference. Uh, In light of that result, the Timbers have two games left, so they can only get as many as six points uh, the rest of the season. What do you think uh, the realistic aspirations are for this team at this point? Yeah, I I think this result really did hurt the Timbers in terms of their ability to try to get a bye and clinch one of those top two spots in the West. I, I think they needed this win to put themselves at least a tie at minimum to put themselves in a decent position to get that one or two spot. I I think it's still plausible that they end up there. I I think the fact that Seattle dropped points this weekend, that that was really helpful helpful for the Timbers and made the loss look a little bit better under the circumstances. Kansas city does have a hard schedule ahead. They're tied with the Timbers on points right now, but they have uh, two games at hand. Seattle is also tied on with the Timbers on points, but they do not have any games in hand. So it is still conceivable that the Timbers end up in that two spot, but I think because of that result, it's much more likely that this is a team that's going to be fighting for the number three or number four spot and trying to host a knockout game rather than being a true contender to get one of those buys. I, you know, I guess I'm a little bit more optimistic than you are on this. Uh, I saw there, there was a sort of a playoff, uh, position. I think, uh, 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 I think it was American soccer. I can't even remember who put it out now. Uh, but they sort of, they sort of mathematically charted out the odds of each team getting into each, uh, playoff position. And the Timbers still had something like a 30% chance or so, uh, maybe a little bit less than that. It may have been down in the twenties, but it was an appreciable chance nonetheless, uh, of getting that, that, that second spot. And, and the reason for that is relatively clear. Of Kansas City's four games left, and that you're right, that is the the most difficult fact for the Timbers. Uh, three of those four games are on the road. Kansas City has only won two games on the road all year long. They're two six and six uh, away from Sporting Park. Uh, and so, if for example, in those three games, SKC gets no points, or or, or, or even takes even say they take three points uh, from those games, they do okay, and they get three draws from those three games on the road. Uh, that could be a serious opening for the Timbers. The, the, that would make make it essentially. Uh, so the so the Timbers uh, could uh, tie SKC on points if the if the Timbers win their final two games, and because uh, the Timbers would have more wins, they would get the second spot. Uh, and so I do think it, it is very much a realistic proposition that the Timbers could still slide in for that first round by, could still get uh, that second seed, which would be massive. That would be huge. Uh, but you know, a, as you noted. Uh, it is not anymore a likelihood. And if, if the Timbers had gone to San Jose and had won that game, 
it absolutely would have been a likelihood. The Timbers would have very likely uh, been in the spot if they'd won their final two at home, in which they they would have had uh, one of those top two spots and earned that first round bye. They very well could have uh, even come away winning the Western Conference. I think that is realistically gone at this point. But yeah, I mean, it, it is a likelihood now. It is more likely than not to be sure that the Timbers are going to be in either that third or fourth fourth seed which means they're going to be playing a midweek game at home before going into the the the, the uh, conference semifinal uh, against whomever they would match up against. Obviously not ideal. Uh, it is indeed, even in light of the, the Seattle loss to Philly, uh, it is a, a costly loss for the Timbers uh, to drop those points down in San Jose. So certainly disappointing, certainly damaging, uh, disappointing to see the Timbers frankly come out and, and put in kind of a stinker uh, in what was a, a really important game, but that's what they put in. I guess that's how it goes. Uh, the injury report, this certainly played a, a big part in the game, uh, but Fernando Adi, as expected, remained out. We got a little bit more information after the game about sort of how long he's going to remain out. Uh, what do we know about Adi and his availability potentially against DC United uh, in a week and a half's time? Yeah, I, I think it is up in the air whether he's going to be available, and that's not great to hear. Uh, Caleb Porter said after the game, uh, when asked, you know, does this two weeks give you the chance to get Audi back in that he really didn't know it yet at this point, whether or not Audi would be back in for that game. And so even though it's two weeks away, it's still up in the air. The, the Timbers don't know if he's making enough progress where 14 days, um, or right around that it is going to be enough to get him back on the field. So that's continue, continuing to be worrisome. Um, particularly since we saw, I think in San Jose, um, how much the Timbers do miss Audi when when you have uh, when Diego Valeri isn't having his very best day, and how much production they are lacking um, from not having a player like that on the field. So we'll get a better update next week as we get closer to the game. I am sure Porter will. I hope Porter will give us more information. Uh, but the fact that it's still up in the air and it. Porter didn't speak with a ton of optimism that he's definitely going to be back or anything like that. It is worrisome at this point. And here's the other reality. Uh, even if he is able to get back safe for the Vancouver game, uh, he is able to be back in the team after what by then I think would be a 10 or 11 week layoff. Uh, if I'm doing my math right, what by then would, would be a, a, an, an extended two plus two month plus layoff. He's not going to be able to come in immediately and play more than 15 or 20 minutes in that in that first game. If the Timbers do take one of those third or fourth seeds, they will then have to turn around and play midweek immediately after that. Uh, and then they'll have to turn around, assuming they win that that midweek game uh, in, in the elimination round, uh, and play again just uh, three or four days after that. Audi's availability for those three games and the amount that he'll be able to play in those three games will be pretty limited. It is, it is very, very likely that he wouldn't be able to play more than maybe 30, maybe 45 minutes in any of those three games. That is extremely significant. Uh, the, the fact that the Timbers are not realistically now looking at having him back for, for a period of time at minimum two weeks, uh, and, and based on what Porter's comments, uh, it certainly sounds like it could be another week beyond that very much suggests the, that his ability to impact the playoffs and his ability uh, to come in and contribute at least uh, through that conference semifinal is going to be pretty limited. Uh, and that is not a super attractive proposition for the Timbers. Uh, as we've, we saw, uh, you know, and as you noted, 
Maddox was nowhere uh, for extended periods uh, of that game against the Earthquakes. And, and, and the reality is that is uh, that is a, a commonality for, for Darren Maddox. He, when he, he has done a good job, and he absolutely deserves credit for finding spots over the course of these couple months where he has made a difference. Uh, but he does not provide nearly what Adi provides in the run of play. He doesn't provide nearly what Adi provides when he's not on the score sheet. Uh, and that's the, that's a really, really material difference for the for this Timbers team. So, yeah, the, that, that is not great news uh, for the Timbers in what was a weekend full of not really great news. Uh, hot take segment to be named later. Jamie Goldberg, you're up first. So uh, as I think many people saw, the NWSL award finalists came out today and I immediately tweeted uh, what I thought was the most relevant out of there, which was that there was no thorns in the defender of the year finalist category. And I, I think that is a massive snub um, to both Emily Menges, Emily Sauna. You could name um, Megan Klingberg in that back line as well. The, the thorns have a lot of defenders that have been very good this year. And that's the reason why the Thorns have conceded a league best, the fewest concessions in the NWSL for the second year in a row. They only conceded 20 goals this year. And yet none of those defenders are on the list. And I think this speaks to a broader issue with these NWSL awards over the last few years. I think since 2013, what we've seen is uh, these awards tending to lean towards the biggest name players, uh, seeing the same players get the award year after year, even when they're not deserving. You, you look at uh, this year, Becky Sarabron is once again a finalist for Defender of the Year, and obviously she is a world-renowned defender. But when you look at her team, Kansas City this year, they conceded 11 more goals than the Thorns. So while her she has the reputation, she has the clout with the national team, I don't see why you put her on this list based on this season over someone like Emily Menges and what the thor- what she's been able to do to help the Thorns be the best defending team in the NWSL this year, period. So I, I think that when you see things like that, it just takes away from the seriousness of this, these awards, the, the, the ability to look at them and think they're accurate. And the media is voting on this. I, I'm not sure if it's just the media or if there's other people that have say, uh, a say in it. I'd have to look back on that. Um, I voted for the finalists. But I, I think that we have to do a better job at looking at this entire league and, and people not just picking the biggest names uh, from the national team and things like that, because there are players that aren't deserving that that are deserving that are not on these lists. In their defense, maybe maybe voters out there were were taking a very hey the thorns are a the team is the star kind of approach. They are just super well organized. They're super deep. And that is why instead of singling out one player, we think it's more appropriate uh, to, to sort of give credit to Mark Parsons and vote Mark Parsons uh, to be a finalist for, for coach. Oh, hold on. What? He, no, he didn't. He's not a finalist for coach of the year. Um, okay. I got nothing. Are you kidding me? I mean, like you sort of have to have it one way or the other, right? Either you've got to say, man, this team is just so well put together. They're so organized. The, like they've, they've done such a nice job of getting each player dialed in in a spot where each player, even if not necessarily individually outstanding can be successful and has made them so much greater than the sum of their parts. Then you sort of either have to say that is the absolute no brainer, uh, coach of the year. 
Or you've got to acknowledge that, yeah, this team's got some pretty darn good players. And I think especially when you look on the defensive end of things, uh, with the work that Emily Mangus has done, uh, the work that Emily Sana has done, I, I, I think that, that, that is, those are two very strong shouts. Uh, I think you can also look at the, at the central midfield uh, of, the, of the Thorns. Look at the work that, the, that they have done over the course of the season consistently with parts coming in and out of the, the, the lineup on it with international duty. Uh, and you can certainly, I mean, it seems you would certainly, you should certainly be able to find somebody uh, that is among the league's best players to, 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 to recognize in the, in the season ending awards. But, you know, I, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I, I just, yeah, I, I wanted to, to, to point out the, the flaw in, in neither recognizing sort of the, the, the team is the star mentality and giving credit to the coach, nor acknowledging the individual contributions they've received you can't really have it both ways because you're basically just saying from an awards perspective, uh, the thorns have been, you know, mediocre when the standings prove very, very strongly. Otherwise, uh, 80 French is a finalist for goalkeeper of the year. Uh, I think that is, that is deserved, but at the same time, it's not like 80 French has been, you know, just out of her mind and bailing the thorns out of, uh, out of concession after concession, uh, she has been good. She has had a good year. She she deserves to be on that list. But uh, the fact that she is the only Thorns player uh, to be nominated for an award is legit kind of shocking. Fair take. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Um, I singled out the defenders of the year, but the coaching of the coach of the year as well. You got you got three out of the four top teams um, of the in the for the finalists for coach of the year. And you skip the team that's number two and only two points off of the NWSL shield. And you only give them credit for one player in the entire list. So I, I just think that, that there are some massive uh, snubs going on in the thorns direction. And I don't think that's just because I cover this team. I think you just look at the statistics and you see where they're at in the standings and you should be able to recognize that this team has some pretty good players that deserve some recognition and, uh, a coach that's been able to put this team together pretty well. As uh, as Mark said in our interview, it's because he's come over to the dark side uh, and the thorns are the dark side. By the way, uh, following up on that, I will be very disappointed if somebody does not create a Mark Parsons Emer- Emperor Palpatine uh, mm-hmm. meme at, at some point over the course of the next week or so. Um, Twitter followers, get on that. Uh, yes, my hot take. I'm going to talk about like I want a drum roll, but that's it's kind of lame because I only I could only like do my fingers on on my desk, and that's not a very good drum roll. Uh, I'm going to talk about drum roll, Alex Morgan. Uh, hi, I'm Chris. I am a a well known Alex Morgan critic. Uh, I was was pleased with the deal that the Thorns made uh, to send Alex Morgan uh, to Orlando. Uh, over the course of my you know soccer commenting, whatever it is. Uh, I have been noted many, many times uh, to say that Alex Morgan is uh, largely overrated, uh, both for national team and, and, and club, although I do absolutely acknowledge that she's in some of the best form of her career, both for club and country right now. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I'm an Alex Morgan critic. Uh, I, I would not say she is one of my favorite athletes to watch uh, in Portland for the national team, on and on. She was, I don't even know what the verb is. Um, I like asked to leave apparently a bar at Disney world this last week, which apparently made it onto, which made it onto TMZ, 
Uh, and it's been sort of like bouncing around the, the, the Woso commentariat for the last couple of days. This is so, so dumb. So me, noted Alex Morgan critic, I am going to completely come to her defense on this. This is not a story. It's not a thing. She wasn't arrested. There was nothing illegal. Like basically the, the substance of the allegations is that she got into an argument at like a bar or restaurant and was asked to leave. Give me a break. Give me like, this is, this is look, athletes are absolutely subject to greater scrutiny uh, than, you know, the rest of us as our celebrities, yada, yada, yada. It comes with the territory. Uh, it's part of the trade-off of, of getting paid actual money uh, to play a sport for a living, right? Uh, it, it's nice work if you can get it. The downside is you, you get more scrutiny. But that scrutiny still has to be reasonable. That scrutiny still has to be about real things in life. And yes, she is a role model, but she didn't do anything in this instance that undermines her role as a role model. She didn't do anything illegal or immoral or unethical. Uh, it was just a thing that happened and that happens to frankly, lots of people, uh, over the course, the, the course of their lifetime. Uh, so I, I don't know. It, it's been disappointing to see the amount of discussion it's had. It, it's disappointing to see, although not at all surprising, uh, that somebody like TMZ would make hay out of this. Uh, and frankly, I thought by far the most newsworthy thing in that TMZ piece was that they called uh, Donnie Toya a by all rights squad player for Orlando city and MLS star. That was the biggest news by far uh, in that whole piece. The stuff about Alex Morgan, it's within her right to go out to a bar. Sometimes you get into a, an, an argument with somebody, whatever, They're like who cares? Donnie Toya, not a star. Jamie. I actually want to just add on to that. One of, one of the most disappointing things I saw in some of the coverage, I, I think this was both in TMZ, which is not surprising, but also in The Guardian, um, was comparing this to Hope Solo's actions and Abby Wambach's DUI. Um, <laughs> yeah. As if this yeah. is a national team problem of over-drinking and doing terrible things. I, I mean, this is not on the level of what Hope Solo has done multiple things that Hope Solo has done. And it's not on the level of Abby Wambach drinking and getting into a car and endangering other people by driving. <laughs> it's, it is a completely different thing. She made a scene. It was embarrassing for her. Probably not a night that she is going to think fondly of in the, in the future, but she wasn't endangering anyone. She was being probably a little obnoxious, um, but she didn't do anything illegal. And, I just, I agree. I, I think this has been blown out of proportion more than it has to. And I, I while athletes do get more scrutiny, I, I think at, at some point they should be allowed to make certain types of mistakes and live their own life. So as long as they're not doing anything immoral or illegal. And I think what she did was she, she got, she drank too much and it wasn't her best day, but I think it is unfair what what's, a little bit what's going on with the coverage now. And uh, as Tom, <laughs> as Tom Zermani said, when asked if, if she was going to play this week and essentially he said, there's nothing there. And I, I essentially agree. I, I just don't think there's much to it. Um, obviously all, all the news outlets ended up covering it because everyone was covering it and it was a discussion point, but I, I don't think it needed to become the discussion point that, that it became. And it's the type of article that I'm not surprised TMZ would go after 
but it's the type of tabloid journalism that um, just kind of make gives me a bad feeling because I, I just don't think there it was all that deserved or much of a story at all. Let she or he who has not made, you know, an arse out of themselves at some point cast the first stone on this one. Uh, I think everybody has embarrassed themselves at some point, said something stupid, done something dumb, even if it wasn't uh, wasn't illegal or immoral uh, and, and, and regretted it. And that is, yeah, part of the human condition. Um, thorns. Yes, back to the Thorns, uh, and in particular, their 3-1 win uh, over the Chicago Red Stars to close out the regular season. Uh, Haley Rosso, Ashley Sykes, and Nadia Nadim uh, each uh, scoring goals in this one. Our predictions, pretty, pretty good, if I may say so myself. Uh, you called a 2-0 Thorns win over the Red Stars with a Nadia Nadim goal. Uh, at halftime, you were right on the, the first half of that. You were wrong on the first half of it after halftime, but you got the second half of it. Uh, I called a 3-1 win for the Thorns, which was just, you know, unequivocally correct. Uh, but I called a Lindsey Horan goal and assist, which is unequivocally incorrect. Jamie Goldberg, what do you think the appropriate allocation of points here is? I feel like I'm going to uh, not make you happy again, but we'll see. <laughs> I think that we both deserve 20 points. Um, I think that it evens out because I got my side bet. You didn't. I got the margin. I got the win. I did not get the scoreline. You got the scoreline right on, but you didn't get your side bet. So I am going to call this even. And I think it's, um, I think this was an expected win, but I think it's still deserving of 20 points each. Okay. But I'm going to be back for that fraction of a point that you denied me earlier. Uh, <laughs> so the thorns, uh, started the game with the, with what is effectively their, uh, their best lineup right now, or what has been their best lineup, uh, in, in Tobin Heath's absence, uh, and then they pulled a triple switch at halftime, bringing on uh, Ali Long, uh, Tobin Heath, a full Harry, if you will, uh, and Dagny Brenya's daughter at, at halftime. How did you think that sort of approach to the game panned out o- over the course of the 90 minutes? Yeah, I, uh, I didn't think it worked out that well. I, I think um, Parsons made some of those decisions at halftime. Uh, I, I think with Klingenberg, she had had maybe a little bit of a tweak. They, they wanted to take her off just in case. Uh, nothing really there, but it's a meaningless game. Be, pr- be careful. I, I think um, it was Henri that came off for Allie Long. I think she was sitting on a yellow card, so they didn't want to uh, risk that. Um, and then obviously they need to get Tobin on the field. Uh, so I, I think there was reasons for the switch switches. They wasn't just simply, Oh, let's get some players out and rest them. But I, I think it, it was a major disruption. I, I think Chicago came out in, in the second half and had new life. They put on some of their starters in the second half. It gave them a spark. They, I think put the score two to one at one point and then the thorns were able to put it away but there was a period of time there that it really felt like chicago might be able to get back in this game and, and get a result uh so i i didn't like the subs at halftime I, I i don't think they made i don't think it really matters that they were made i, I think they're made probably for the right reasons because ultimately uh making sure that players are available for the next game and building tobin heat's minutes was the most important things that the thorns need to get out of this match um but it's obviously not something I'd want to see in a more meaningful game uh, because I, I felt like the thorns were dominant in the first half and those changes kind of made it difficult for them to keep that momentum going, at least for the first part of the second half. 
it's also, I think you would agree, something we would never see in a meaningful yeah, game. Exactly. Uh, that. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, if this was a meaningful game, there's no way uh, Parsons would have basically pulled the closest soccer equivalent of a line change uh, at halftime, uh, totally disrupted uh, sort of sort of the, the flow of the team and, and, and done that. So that, you know, I mean, the, the fact that it happened only hap- would have happened in the context of A, a game they were leading 2-0 and B, a game that didn't matter that they were leading 2-0. Uh, as far as the first half and the way that sort of first choice in light of Tobin's minutes limitations lineup went, uh, I thought was some of the most dominant soccer we've seen from the Thorns over the course of the season. They were outstanding. They were all over the Red Stars, albeit the Red Stars playing a, a, a pretty significantly weakened lineup. Uh, and, and you know, I mean, the, the, the 2-0 was in many ways flattering uh, towards Chicago. Uh, at halftime. That is just how dominant the Thorns were. I thought they did their work before halftime. Uh, and the second half was in, in many ways sort of a, you know, glorified exhibition exhibition match, uh, so to speak, that had some purposes, but those purposes were exactly what you, uh, what you stated. Not get anybody suspended, get Tobin Heath 45 minutes under, under her belt uh, and, and get everybody out of the game healthy uh, and, and in good form going into this playoff game against the Pride. So from that perspective, unequivocal mission accomplished. No questions asked, no question about it. Uh, and, and and I think the Thorns can, can consider that not just a win in the standings, but sort of a win in what they needed to get out of the game. Uh, we found out today, and as reiterated here on the show uh, a few moments ago, now more than a few, several moments ago, uh, Tobin Heath is going to start uh, against the Orlando Pride in that playoff game. Uh, and how much she plays will depend on just how she feels, how uh, how things are going over the course of the game. Do you think that is the right approach to start her in this game, even though the Thorns have had a lot of success uh, over the course of the season with her off the field? Yeah, I, I think it is a little bit of a tough decision, but ultimately I, I think that it is the right decision. I, I think she has been a difference maker when she's come on in these last two games. I, I think she's been a little bit... Uh, out of form when you look at just maybe the shots she's taken just a little bit in terms of her connection with her teammates but I do think she's made a material difference in the attack and just another week of training another week to build her fitness she should only be that much better and I think she was going to come on at some point anyways I I like the idea to have her start and give her the option to potentially go maybe 60 minutes uh, as opposed to coming on in the second half and and maybe going only 45 because I think the Thorns are just a better team with her on the field. And while she's still working her way up to full strength, she's just such a good player and such a good player with the ball at her feet that I think this can make a material impact on the game. And I I personally think it's a good thing that she's going to be in there. Yeah, you know, easy one uh, from that perspective. Look, she's one of the best players in the world. Period. Uh, and when you've got one of the best players in the world and she's physically ready to go uh, in a starting shift, you play her. Period. Uh, and and I think that's probably about the extent of the analysis that Parsons has gone through uh, over the course of the week on that. She did get her 45 minutes in, which means in the natural progression, you would expect her to be able to play at least 60-ish, maybe 70, 75 uh, and who knows? I mean, it, it may be that she's been able to do enough fitness work building up that she'll be re- be ready to go a full 90. Uh, but in light of the the sort of circumstances of the game, 
unless something was going super wrong, you wouldn't disrupt the team at halftime. So it's not like you'd be able to get her another 45 minute shift. So if you, if you put her on the bench uh, to start the game, you'd realistically, as long as things were going non-disastrously be looking at at most 30 minutes of Tobin Heath and Hey, that's not what you want one of the best players in the world uh, to be contributing in, in, in a big, meaningful game. You want to get a lot more than 30 minutes out of her. Uh, and the way you do that now uh, is you, you put her in the starting lineup. So I'm looking forward to seeing how it plays over the course of a full game. That always looks a little bit different than when somebody comes in as a substitute, even when it's a halftime substitute, uh, especially in a game that doesn't mean a whole lot uh, and, and that it was you know functionally uh, not a terribly competitive game. So I'm looking forward to seeing how it goes, but I, I certainly think uh, this is a, a decision that Mark Parsons can make resting very, very comfortably. Uh, we got a question from our friends over at the Morrisonic Podcast who want to know, is there a reasonable way to make the NWSL playoffs longer than two weekends? We've talked about uh, MLS potentially making some changes to shorten uh, their playoffs. Do you think NWSL should consider making some format changes to lengthen their playoffs? Yeah, I, I mean, in a season like this where you don't have the Olympics and, and you don't have uh, the World Cup, I, I think the NWSL would be able to make a, their playoffs longer. The, the problem is whether they can keep that consistent on Olympic and World Cup years because it is already a challenge to kind of squeeze the season in while also kind of putting a big enough break during those times to accommodate the fact that the best players in the league aren't going to be there. It's a difficult time frame for the the league to be in playing through the summer when they know two out of every four years are, are going to have major uh tournaments interfering with it i i think it would be nice to see it longer than two weekends i, I think there's also questions just about interest uh that is still growing um interest from tv partners like lifetime do they really want to be broadcasting more and more games if the viewership just isn't there yet. I, I think that is a real question for the NWSL and, and something that maybe is something they're going to have to grow over time and they're just not there yet uh, because I don't think the viewership for either of these playoffs games is going to be particularly high. You you hope it's going to be higher than the regular season and there will be a little bit of a bump there, but they're still growing in that aspect. And I, I think to really have a big playoff push where you have it on a lot of lot of games and they're all on TV. You, you do want to the TV partners are going to want to see some viewership there as well. Um, so I think that's kind of two parts to that. It's both they need to keep grow, growing their fan support to get to a point where it's viable from a broadcast perspective, and they have to figure out how they're going to balance their season year after year. And, and we've seen them changing the number of games year after year. You don't really want that inconsistency as the league continues to get older uh, when they're playing in the summer around the Olympics and the world cup. So I, I think there's some things they have to figure out in terms of how the season goes. And, and I kind of doubt we're going to see the playoff format change, at least in the near future. If, if you were sort of commissioner and you were required to change the format to lengthen it beyond the two weekends, how would you do it? Would you expand the field or would you sort of maybe go to a two leg format? Yeah, a two-leg format would be interesting. Uh, you could, I guess, expand the field, but there, it's. I like it with four teams right now. I, I don't, I don't enjoy even with MLS the percentage of teams that get in. I, I like it to be a little bit harder for teams to make playoffs. You could expand it maybe to six if you wanted to and have a play-in game, and then a, a two-leg format and 
um, a two-leg format final or just a single final. You could try something like that, uh, somewhat close to mirroring what MLS does, minus uh, that extra leg there. Um, two-leg format would be interesting to try just so that it's not one and out, one and out, because uh, it definitely makes the playoffs go by really quick after a long season. And teams that, as we saw with the Thorns last year, your playoff playoffs can end pretty quickly, even for the best teams. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see possible changes. Um, and I do think the two-leg format would be an interesting one, maybe up to six teams. I definitely wouldn't want to see it be more than that, uh, especially with the number of teams they have right now. Uh, but I kind of do like having four in there right now, making it a little bit more competitive to get one of those spots. I totally agree. And, and that's a big, big part of the reason why I don't think it's reasonable uh, to to look to expand the playoffs right now, because uh, a I totally agree with you on the broadcast stuff. I think it would be a little bit of a tough sell uh, to get national attention on every playoff game. If you went to two leg series, uh, even expanded it that way. And I don't like the idea right now of, of expanding it much beyond uh, the the four teams that, it, that it's at right now. Um, you know, this is a, a gripe that people play up about MLS. I, I think people overplay it a little bit, uh, but I don't necessarily disagree. I, I, I prefer uh, that it be a little bit harder to get into the playoffs uh, and, and that it be a, a little bit more of a ratification of a successful season rather than a just not unsuccessful season. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that. I don't think it's reasonable right now. Uh, you know, and would I like to see, uh, you know, maybe another round on there or something like that? Yes. But, you know, well, let's talk when the, the league is up to, you know, 14 or 16 teams or something like that. At that point, I think that's a very, very viable change uh, to make and maybe go uh, to six or so. Um, okay. I think all we have left are our predictions. So predictions, big game. Thorns versus Orlando Pride. Once again, that is Saturday, 1230. If you're not able to go to the stadium, uh, you can catch it on Lifetime. Uh, Jamie Goldberg, what is going to happen? Well, I think the Thorns are going to redeem themselves from last year's defeat, and they're going to move on to the championship. I I think this is going to be a close game. I think Orlando has a lot of firepower, and this is going to be a tough game for both teams. So I'm going to predict a Thorns win. They're going to win. Two to one, and Megan Klingenberg, who was their assist leader in the regular season, is going to get both assists on those two goals. So you're calling a, a, a Klingenberg assist brace with a two-one win. I'm going to go with the win as well. I'm going to go on a limb though and say it's going to be a two-zero win. I think the Thorns match up well with the Pride, uh, notwithstanding the Pride's uh, attacking tools. I actually don't think they've been playing super well over the course of the last few weeks. I'm not sure that they win that game at North Carolina if it's a meaningful game for North Carolina. Uh, and and frankly, I just against the Thorns a couple weeks ago, uh, there was nothing in this Pride team that I looked at and said, man, that's something that really scares me for, for the Thorns. I thought uh, in, a, in a game that was at Orlando that Orlando had to win, uh, it was a pretty disappointing attacking performance against a very, very, very good Thorns defense. And so I think that Thorns defense is going to do uh, enough. I think uh, Toman Heath is going to make uh, a difference in this game. She's going to register two assists for the Thorns uh, as, as they run away uh, with a 2-0 win and, and advance to the final. Um, fantasy update, I think, is all we have left to do. Uh, the top three, as usual. In third is Timbers Beast. That's Fargo with 3,117 points. Almost gave him a big uh, upgrade. Uh, Timbertown, that is Lion second with 3150. Uh, and in first place, we have Big Hearts Brass Balls as usual. Aaron, 3194. I'm down in 49th place. I have 
sort of jumped into the Florida position, 49th best state, 49th best team. Um, and Jamie Goldberg, you remain in last. You are the Texas uh, of, <laughs> as I've just defended, a good a good portion of America. But you are the Texas of the Soccer Made in Portland Fantasy League. Uh, and that is the end of the podcast, uh, as I'm, like, you know, running from pitchforks and, and torches at this point. Uh, we are Soccer Made in Portland. You can find us every week on Stumptown Footy and OregonLive.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes and, and Stitcher. I'm Chris Reifer. That's Jamie Goldberg. Thank you all for all your questions. Uh, and thanks once again to Mark Parsons for coming on the show. Uh, enjoy the big playoff game of uh, the Thorns in the NWSL semifinal uh, this week. And we'll be back next week to talk about that and more. And until then, as always, take care. <laughs>